1: Welcome back. I am Seth Leapson. Wednesday, October 19th, 2022. 602 Say good Say goodnight. The party's over. That's the title from the latest out of The Bulwark. It's a website of former Republicans or Republicans who don't support the Republican Party or Republicans who don't support the choices of Republican voters, which shows you how much they respect the notion of the consent of the governed which is to say they don't respect it, or at least they respect it only so much as it is their exclusive cause of ire and criticism, with nothing to say about what Democrats are up to, what leftism is up to, what liberalism is up to, which kind of shows you how much they care about why there should be a Republican Party at all. We have two or more parties in this country because I would think it obvious to an adult one party does not represent the views of vast portions of the population, and thus they need a counterweight because they have a different set of concerns, or at least a different set of policy solutions to the same concerns. Too much poverty? One party thinks you hand money and subvention out or try to make the rich poorer. The other party sees opportunity enrichment and tries to create and enhance condition for conditions for earned success or economic liberty. This isn't new, and it surprises me it comes or would come as news to adults at a website involved in the business of politics especially as they hold themselves out as caring about conservatism and the Republican Party. The founders are Bill Kristol, Charlie Sykes, and the author of the piece I mentioned above, one Sarah Longwell. Kristol, in his day, opposed universal health care, worked as the chief of staff for Dan Quayle when he was vice president, and was one of the most ardent opponents of gay marriage and supporters of lower taxes, Crystal is also credited with pressing and promoting Sarah Palin as a VP nominee for John McCain in 2008. No Bill Crystal, no Sarah Palin. And perhaps before it was time, he and David Brooks, now with the New York Times, were the inventors of a label and project of theirs they kicked off in the late 1990s called National Greatness Conservatism. You might think a Republican or conservative movement dedicated to making America great again or American greatness might find sucker there. But no. And more on that in a moment. Back to the essay. It opens by saying that for years, these uh, conservatives have watched the defenestrations, that's their word, defenestrations of Republicans from within the Republican Party, and they give us a list. Will Hurd, Jeff Flake, George W. Bush... The memory of John McCain, Paul Ryan, Liz Cheney, Adam Kinziger, and any other Republican who stood up to the MAGA movement. Hell of a list. What, for instance, can anyone tell me about Will Hurd? What was he known for? What did he do? He did one thing, so far as I recall, and it's the only thing that made him famous, as far as I can tell, which is challenging and condemning Donald Trump. I never heard of him before that. Never heard of a conservative issue or Republican position he made a strong stand for, or any stand for, that was noticeable to anyone whatsoever. Jeff Flake. He was known as one of the most difficult to work with Republicans when he was in the House, and same again when he was in the Senate. His name became most famous when he was the single Republican who helped Barack Obama normalize or try to normalize relations with Cuba. The December 2014 headline from Politico was, quote, Obama's Republican ally on Cuba, close quote. It's all about Jeff Flake. You might think someone so opposed to tyranny and who would later call Donald Trump a tyrant might have first made such an observation about the Castro cartel, especially as that experiment to normalize relations with Cuba has foundered with a doubling down of the tyranny that is Cuba since then. And after Raul Castro claimed the normalization effort was a defeat of the United States, Cuba thought they won. It's not so much that Republicans threw Jeff Flake out. He threw out one of the chief principles of the Republican Party, standing up to communism, especially in our hemisphere and especially in Cuba. Jeff Flake wrote a book after he chose not to run for reelection. His book stole the title from Barry Goldwater's book the conscience of a conservative, as if he, Flake, were the true conscience of conservatism. Jeff Flake would whine that Trump's language was unbecoming of a national leader, but it was Flake who literally and vocally compared Donald Trump to Joseph Stalin, showing his understanding to be quite wanting about what communism was or is in the first place. George W. Bush, they mention, I'm not sure what the bulwark wants us to do with Bush, He was a two-term president. The whole party and movement got behind, and then he retired. Normally, popular presidents speak at their successor nominees' conventions. His successor nominee was John McCain in 2008. McCain and his team did not invite George W. Bush to speak at the GOP convention in 2008. So who defenestrated who? And am I missing something, or was Bush also not at the 2012 Mitt Romney convention? Again, who defenestrated who? And am I missing something, or aren't McCain and Romney the beau ideals of these anti maga Republicans? So McCain and Romney sidelined Bush, and the MAGA movement is blamed for sidelining McCain, Romney, and Bush. But who sidelined who again? As for McCain and Trump having a feud, it was McCain who drew first blood by saying Trump was firing up the crazies. That's his phrase, firing up the crazies when Trump announced his candidacy for president. And as far as Republicans' support for McCain or McCain's support for Republicans go, McCain promised to build a wall and then voted against it. He promised to end Obamacare and then voted against doing so, tricking the voters or lying to them in both cases, and the decisive vote, by the way, on the Obamacare. In all of his ventures, Bill Kristol became the most famous in 1993 for leading the national effort to stop Hillary Care. When it became Obamacare, McCain ended up supporting it, but he's Bill Kristol's hero. Explain that definition of commitment to principle for me. You can't. Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger. I really don't know anything about Kinzinger, Kin- Kinz- Kinzinger. <laughs> Sorry. but like Will Hurd, if you thought he was some kind of prominent conservative or Republican for or on behalf of anything other than challenging Trump, I'm open to the correction. That is to say, the only thing he was known for was challenging Trump. Where were his conservative credentials or profiles and courage on behalf of the party or movement before that? In other words, with what heft did he come to the fore as a conscientious, wise, conservative or hero for any cause before that? And Liz Cheney? I'm simply amazed at how much the Democrats have embraced her and how self-deflating and of low self-respect she must be. She, her dad and her family were lambasted as the embodiment of evil, labeled everything from Darth Vader to terrorists in and of themselves by the Democrats. Until she decided that when the same was said of Donald Trump, those same labels, she would join that course and rehabilitate or try to rehabilitate her reputation that away. way She has proven useful to the Democrats who never found a Cheney they wouldn't slander until then. And when she joined them, yeah, The voters of Wyoming decided she should run with the party she kisses the ring of, the Democrats. You see a pattern here? You don't find Democrats ever breaking rakes to join Republicans. You see Republicans doing it all the time and thus forgive those of us who stay in the party because we believe in its principles and the choices of our fellow citizens in elections that we don't defect over from petty or personal moral self-importance or needs for Klieg There's another point to be made here, best summed up by David Rayboy's question. Do you know what time it is? These Republicans who jump ship to join the Democrats' war against us simply refuse to see the clock, the dangers within and coming from the Democratic Party, which makes one wonder why they were ever Republicans in the first place. In other words, as I sketched out above, every hero exists only because there is an anti-hero. We get this from every children's story. Nearly every Greek play, nearly every biblical tale, and nearly every comic book ever known to man. There's no point, in other words, to be a Republican if there's not a problem with the Democrats. And these heroes of the bulwark obviously see no danger or problem emanating from the Democratic Party. The Cheneys and Crystals have problems with Iran, that's for sure. That's been their chief foreign policy concern for years, and foreign policy was Liz Cheney's chief issue. Trump pulled out of the deal that saturated Iran with billions of dollars that even the architect of that plan, John Kerry, who ran against Bush, let us not forget, even John Kerry admitted we would see some of those billions end up in the hands of terrorists. So the Cheneys and the Crystals go after Trump, the guy who did what the Cheneys and Crystals said they wanted, but who support the party that is now doing everything it can to shower more billions onto the malocracy, And they call this principle? Principled conservatism? Now, about that project of national greatness conservatism that Bill Kristol dreamed up and promoted with David Brooks in the late 1990s, that was their effort and passion until the war on terror came. The project was dedicated, in their words, to be, quote, a great project designed to physically and spiritually unify the nation. Close quote. The project was dedicated to reinvigorating what, quote, Americans did when they redoubled their devotion to American nationalism Hit by economic blows to their confidence, they reasserted their faith in themselves. Faced by anxiety and intellectual uncertainty, they did not succumb to malaise or cynicism, quote. Holy cow. They supported American nationalism, their word. And they went further, almost keliastically so, writing, quote, At their best, those Americans asked big questions. How can America produce a culture it can be proud of? How will the inhabitants of some future world power look back on American achievement during its moment of supremacy? What are the steps that a nation can take to preserve the virtues that lead to greatness in the first place? Close quote. American supremacy, you say? I could go on and on, but you get the point. The point is all this noise from the Bulwarkians is not work of principle. When they had a movement that represented all they said was of the utmost importance upon principle... They cheered for the opponents. And let us recall the full name of that movement that they don't like. Make America Great Again. Worth reciting. The more they speak of their virtue, the faster we should count our spoons. Turns out their principle is about themselves and their own relevance and to hell with real principle, supporting and building America and doubling down on her greatness, opposing communism, opposing state sponsors of terror. When they had that, they went against it. There's this notion some people say about conservatism, Inc., that they just don't like winning and they prefer losing. Well, it has its ring of truth right here, doesn't it? And that self-destruction, abandonment of ethics, is not only psychological self-harm, it is political and national harm. Count me as glad these devoid of principle politicians have been defenestrated. That means literally thrown out of a window. They inherited not success by dint of their own efforts, but they inherited the wind by dint of their own abandonment of ground and jumping out into it. And what does it mean to inherit the wind? To inherit nothing. Ours is not a movement of nihilism. Theirs is. I'm Seth Leibson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. If you're worried about stock market volatility, my friends at Y ReFi are offering up an investment in a portfolio with a strong fixed rate of return and no correlation to the stock market. They're offering this investment all in a secure and collateralized portfolio with an up to ten and a quarter percent return for investors, and the investment can be a joint investment. It can be in an individual investment. It can be in a trust. It can be in an IRA. Yrefi refi is a due diligence approved firm. It's made up of really great guys who do really well by doing good for others. And you can be a part of that. Check them out at investyrefi.com. The word invest, the letter Y-R-E-F-Y.com. Or give them a call at 855 316 855 316 three zero eight seven. Never a sales pitch. They just like talking about what they do and letting it speak for itself. Been a few stories here and there. Oh yes, programming note. Been getting a lot of calls and emails on uh what we think, what I think, I guess. Uh what Bill? Who are the three categories of people Mark Twain said should only use the word we? Do you remember? Yep. Royalty. Yeah, yeah except in the other order makes it funny or if you say yeah kind (laughs) of the only people who should use the word we mark twain said is editors royalty and people with tapeworm uh i was i've been asked uh for thoughts on the propositions that are in our ballots that uh, many of you i guess all of you have received in the mail if you uh Anyway, if you get a mail-in ballot and you're looking at the propositions, I've been asked what my position on those is. I'm going to do them with George Kaloff, our political consultant and expert, at uh, 4.30 today. So in about an hour, we'll do that. And uh, if you want to take notes or if you want uh, me to take notes, I will do that. There's been some talk, too. You've heard it. uh, Fox has covered it and a few others, that uh, the CDC Advisory Committee Is looking into is debating right now, discussing and debating on whether to recommend uh, COVID nineteen vaccines, COVID nineteen vaccine immunizations uh, for children in their uh, in their vaccines for children program, as well as in their immunization schedule. Two different things, Uh, and and it's led to a little bit of confusion. The vaccines for children program is uh, the program that whereby the government Covers the cost of the vaccines because the vaccines are going to be moving out of um, government um, distribution and going back into private uh, distribution and uh, uh, and uh, privatized. So whether they will be covered, a lot of medicines, a lot of vaccines are covered for children who can't afford it or who don't have health insurance. Uh, So that's what the vaccines for children program is. As I read the news, they did vote to recommend that the other one, a little different. Is the immunization scheduling of these COVID nineteen vaccines for children, and that's what the CDC does—that recommends whether states and thus schools should um, should uh, request of parents uh, whether they advise children to get vaccines before going to school or not. It's not a mandate uh, quite. It's a recommendation, but that will be decided tomorrow. Here's the problem with that recommendation. There are already states that are trying to mandate vaccines for children, COVID vaccines for children. Let me be specific and clear. COVID vaccines for children, particularly California and the District of Columbia, New York. So how does it work? Uh, this uh, person I follow on Twitter who did it so well. Anyway, it doesn't matter. He says, here's how it works. Because people say, well, it's not mandated by the CDC. Eh. The CDC says, don't blame us. We only make recommendations. Each school can make up their own decisions. Take it up with them. The schools then say, don't blame us. We're just following the CDC's recommendations. Take it up with them. It's a loop of deniability that ends up being an effectual mandate now, the nonsense of all of this, of course, is that children don't face a substantial threat from vaccinations but uh, excuse me from covid nineteen more children die in drownings every year than have died than die from covid um, covid nineteen or even with covid nineteen there's a separate altogether issue here altogether separate issue if covid doesn't really dramatically affect children and no one's telling children to stop swimming if covid doesn't really affect children here um what are the side effects of getting the vaccine what are the adverse effects to children of getting the vaccine myocarditis is making uh, a spill of news it says it is a rare adverse event but guess what? If you go to the CDC website, the risk appears highest among adolescents and children. Okay, it's rare, but we are now putting it in the population where it's worth. Now, what about just adverse, general adverse event, uh, adverse events from the vaccine? Fever, tiredness, headache, chills, muscle, and joint pain. That's what the CDC says you can expect. okay. Now, you know you're not going to die from it as a child, so what will happen to you if you get it? Fever, tiredness, headache, chills, muscle, or joint pain. Why are we torturing the children? Please stop. Please stop torturing the children, you tyrants. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Time for our culture and economy update with John Dombrowski, the great John Dombrowski. He is the president and founder of Grand Canyon Planning Associates. GrandCanyonPlanning.com is his website. You can get all kinds of information there, including on his own radio show, which is broadcast here every Saturday morning at 7 a.m. The Word on Wealth. How are you, John? Thank you very much. You doing
2: well? Excellent day. Yes.
1: Uh, I want to ask you two questions. Sure. Uh, First, uh, the Beige Book came out today. We've talked about it here and there. Or It looks like a headline on the Beige Book came out today. Businesses expect economy to weaken. Fed Beige Book says the Federal Reserve's business contacts are pessimistic about economic growth amid high inflation and rising interest. That can't be good for Joe Biden's messaging going into the election, can it?
2: You wouldn't think. And of course there's a lot of negative talk out there yeah. about what's happening right now. Many believe that there's gonna be some form of a recession in this in the second half of the year. Whether that's gonna be a mild recession or a deep recession is still up for debate. But most people are in the camp that that is most likely what's going to happen. But a lot of it hinges, again, on uh, what the Fed is continuing to do, what they're going to continue to do, and ultimately how it's going to affect corporate earnings. That's going to be the big deal. The corporate
1: earnings are the big deal. But it does kind of lead to my other
2: question,
1: uh, and no doubt you get these, which is what do these elections do generally? How do the stock markets, how do stocks perform? around elections and after elections.
2: And I've been getting a lot of questions about that, Seth, yeah. especially with the midterms, yeah. because it's you wouldn't think it's that much of an issue, right? Because, you know, presidential uh, change is, is a little bit, you know, more, right. uh, you know, of, a, of, of an issue, we would think. Yeah. But the midterms, in reality, uh, it's interesting to go back and see about 25% of the time over the last 60 years, going back to JFK, 25% of the time, Uh, the stock market has had negative returns up to the uh, election. Uh, And then, uh, it doesn't matter historically, uh, over the past 60 years, the markets between the election day, no matter who took over, uh, and the end of the year, the markets on average, their average rally was 7.3%. Isn't that interesting?
1: It really is. Yeah,
2: that's a big number. Do that again.
1: Say that again.
2: So... uh, historically, again, yeah. going back 60 years, yeah. now this is only the midterms, yeah, yeah, talking yeah, about yeah, the midterms. It yeah, 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 yeah. doesn't yeah, matter yeah, yeah, right. who's taking you know over, the Democrats or the Republicans, winning seats. But up to the election, from January to, say, October 31st, the markets on average uh, have been down about 11.2%. And then uh, after the election, no matter what the results have been, the average... Uh, midterm average has been, uh, 7.3% from the election Mm -hmm. results to the end of the year.
1: Yeah. Okay. So interesting. Now, and I Something about certainty.
2: Yeah. And I went back and I looked at some of the, uh, the biggest changes that we saw. The biggest one was, uh, 2010. Right. Uh, Barack Obama lost 63 seats. But prior to that, it was Bill Clinton lost 52 seats. Uh, prior to that, Ronald Reagan, he gained, uh, seats. So, um... It's just interesting to see uh, what what this all looks like and what we can expect. But it basically also goes on to say, and that is uh, data from Bloomberg data, mm-hmm. and then this is from U.S. Bank Corp. They talk about uh, you know why does the market underperform you know leading up to the midterms, yeah. and they, they explain it's probably a little bit of policy uncertainty. I,
1: I think it's uncertainty. Yeah, yeah,
2: and and that's certainly an issue. But again, we're looking at today where we've got issues of high. Uh, you know, inflation, which is hasn't been the case over the past uh, couple of decades. So there are other contributing factors that we're seeing now. Uh, But it's interesting to see that after the election, you know, what what would happen? And again, it's the average is 7.3. But there have been a number of years, the last midterm, Donald Trump's midterm, the markets actually lost a third of a percent
1: interest and
2: during mid barack obama's it was down 1% but mm-hmm. then it was up 8.7 so uh it's primarily though more often it's positive than negative so i'm not saying that that's going to be the case this time because you can never predict the future but historically uh that has been a, a positive uh move for the markets after the midterms
1: i was googling around you know various analyses along the lines you gave And uh, it is interesting. Some of it, it seems, also has a little bit to do with market expectations based on increased government spending. True. And, um, you know, if there's a huge Republican wave, if uh, and hopefully from my perspective, Mm -hmm. if um, that 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 would probably have that kind of an effect as well. It means not a lot more government spending.
2: Right. If you get the House and the Senate yeah. to change, yeah. then all of a sudden that's going to stymie the president. He's yeah. not going to be able to get any additional policies through. Exactly. So, and that's probably the best.
1: Good analysis, John. Thank you, you, bet. you, sir.
2: You bet. Securities and Advisory Services, offered through Creative One Securities LLC, a member of FINRA and SIPC, an investment advisor, Grand Canyon Planning Associates LLC, and Creative One Securities LLC are not affiliated. Thank you, Seth. Thank you, John Dombrowski. Much Bye-bye.
1: appreciated. I am Seth Leibson, 602- 508-0960. We'll be right back. Interesting. Little Tanya Tucker and Glenn Campbell there for you, singing a, uh, singing a great oldie, a dream lover, one of my favorites, really, Bobby Darin. Welcome back to The Seth Liebson Show, Six zero two five zero eight zero nine six zero is our number. I, um, uh, I don't need to remind you that Donald Trump was taken off social media platforms from Facebook to Twitter and others for disseminating false information. Right. As they defined it. But for disseminating false information, saying things that evidently to them weren't true. think they'll do the same thing to Stacey Abrams. You know who Stacey Abrams is, right? She is the former candidate for governor, Democrat in Georgia, who lost four years ago and then spent four years claiming election fraud. What other people call a big lie when a Republican calls it, but no one ever called her a big liar or a bigger liar, because she's done it more often than anyone else. And now she's running again for governor in Georgia. Um, You may recall last month she denied that unborn babies have heartbeats at six weeks of gestation. She denied that. Um, That's simply not true. It's simply false information. False science information, something I thought Twitter and social me- other social media outlets cared about, at least when it came to COVID, right? You can't promulgate false information about public health. Uh, she wasn't deplatformed then. she said, uh, She said it was a manufactured sound. Ultrasound technology was a manufactured sound to convince people that men have the right to take control of a woman's body. It's just not true. A few weeks later, she also made a false statement about public health when she said, quote, it is a fallacy we know exactly when the pregnancy starts. That's also false information. What does she really think about abortion? She was on um, MSNBC yesterday, and uh, this transpired, uh, this little conversation transpired.
0: I just asked you, you're running for governor of Georgia, Uh, I would assume, maybe incorrectly, but while abortion is an issue, it nowhere reaches the level of interest of voters in terms of the cost of gas, food, bread, milk, things like that. What can a governor, what could you do as governor to alleviate the concerns of Georgia voters about those livability, daily, hourly issues that they're confronted with?
2: But let's be clear. Having children is why you're worried about your price for gas. It's why you're concerned about how much food costs. For women, this is not a reductive issue. You can't divorce being forced to carry an unwanted pregnancy from the economic realities of having a child.
1: There you go. There you go. Abortion to solve inflation. Abortion to lower the price of gas. Josh Holmes says, you know what really brings down tuition costs, by the way? Abortion. If you don't have a child, you don't have to worry about tuition costs. And that skyrocketing cost of child care, you know how you can reduce it? Abortion. You want more time to relax on the weekend? Abortion. Family cell phone plans? No need. No need for the family cell phone plan with abortion. Student loan debt, too. Do you realize how sick talk about reductive reasoning do you realize how sick the notion is you know the pro-choice movement that's what I'll call it for now I'll use their terminology the pro-choice movement or the pro-abortion movement for years told us women didn't get abortions for merely economic reasons that that was a that was a talking point from the right when we were trying to say they do it just to save money. They do it simply because they can't. The evidence is clear from the Guttmacher Institute's polling that a lot of women do actually say that. But the notion that abortion is the answer to inflation is as uh, gruesome as any of the original reasons that were promoted by Margaret Sanger when she founded the precursor to what has become Planned Parenthood, you know, uh, the Birth Control League. What their um, New York affiliate did was the right thing. It was one of the few things a Planned Parenthood office did, and it was the New York City, it was the Manhattan office. They took Margaret Sanger's name off of it. It was the Margaret Sanger Center. They took her name off it during 2020 BLM, Black Lives Matter movement. You know why? Because Margaret Sanger was an anti-black eugenicist. She had a lot of writings on this. She gave talks to the KKK. There are pictures of her talking to the KKK. She wrote things such as, quote, we do not want word to go out that we want to exterminate the Negro population. I know that hits hard, but she wrote it December tenth, nineteen 1939 in a letter to one of her colleagues, and more. And more. She did much more than this, and said much more than this, referring to using abortion so that we could keep the weeds out of the human race. Her word, weeds. Weeds. It's a rather disgusting and gruesome business when you look into it, and it's rather disgusting, too, when you think about all these debates or questions we've seen asked of Democratic candidates who are opposed to the Tobbs decision, are opposed to the reversal of Roe versus Wade. OK, I get it. Obviously, there is a split mind on this. Obviously, there's a split Supreme Court on this. But when asked, as Mark Kelly was in his debate with Blake Masters, Or when asked, as Katie Hobbs has been several times when she won't do a debate, but when she's been interviewed by the media, where would you put the limit? If 15 weeks isn't good, where would that limit be for you? They have no limit. None. They want it safe and legal up until the ninth month, and in some cases beyond. What's this? some cases beyond business you keep talking about? Well, there was a reason the Congress debated and passed the Born Alive Alive Infant Protection Act because there were nurses who were seeing babies that were slated for abortion but were delivered and then set aside so that the abortion would be quote-unquote effective. It's really gruesome business. And the notion that those of us who are pro-life are the extremists seems to be an awfully heavy dollop of gaslighting when you consider there's not a member of the Democratic Party who's running for office that will issue any single constriction on it whatsoever into the third trimester. Not one. I haven't heard it. They won't do it. We've gone from safe, legal, and rare to any time for any reason. And now we have a new one. Now we're justifying it. Now we're making it a
3: positive good. It will solve inflation. Welcome back to the
1: Seth Leapson Show. Mike is in Phoenix. Hello, Mike.
3: Hey, Seth. Um, long time um, since I talked to you last But I'm a Catholic. pro life. And here's how I explain it to some of these people that are pro-choice. I tell them our government doesn't allow us to put to death a convicted, guilty criminal that they'll allow... An innocent child to be put to death.
1: And we will spend anything to keep that criminal alive, by the way.
3: Of course. And isn't that amazing? Yeah. How backwards and it's a disorientation of,
1: of the value of human life.
3: Right. And I'm not I don't know if you're aware of this, but the Knights of Columbus, we go to Planned Parenthoods. We don't go on their property, we stay on a sidewalk. Sundays once a month. I don't know what other groups do with the knights or other groups pro-life and we just we we stay there say the rosary we're visible people come in or come out as they're driving in or out we just hand them a, a pamphlet and say you do have choices catholic social charities um helps those people if they don't want the child but don't want an abortion they will help them through that process and work with them to adopt that child out. Of course, isn't that you know that's and it's I know a there's other things. It's, a, it's that actually do that. a beautiful.
1: It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful.
3: Thing. Yep. Yeah. So it's great talking to you. Well, thanks. Um, we I'm going to show. an event
1: tonight. Uh, that um, well, anyway, Mike. Thank you. I, I appreciate your efforts, and I appreciate your call and kind words and kind and decent acts. I mean, how callous of society do we want here? What kind of message of a society do we want here? What kind of a society do we want to communicate to kids about how we value their life? We've been doing a pretty lousy job of it. We've uh, certainly done a lousy job of it through COVID. The CDC is about to make another bad decision, I fear, in communicating how we should fear our children and thus must inject them with something that will make them feel more ill than the something the injection is supposed to save them from. Um, it's, 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 it's a disoriented and unhealthy society and, um, and it just makes me, makes me worry about this place, Mike. I wish more Republican candidates talked about it in those terms. Are we making society more soothing, more easy and more respectful and decent? It's a good word, decency. Are we making our society more decent or are we making it harsher? and more callous. Maybe I should write a speech for a candidate about that. All right, we have a lot more coming up. Don't go away. I'm Seth Leibson, and we'll be right back.